Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. I'm starting my episodes this month with some exciting news. I have now launched my new website, KarenAnceMD.com, as well as a variety of social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all under KarenAnceMD. And I would love for you to start following me on these channels because my hope is that I can start putting out some content that is going to help all of us on our journey. And the theme for this month is the white essence, which is about essential will. And I'm teaching a free class on Wednesdays from six to seven that is going to help all of us to change our habits. So whatever habit you have, I'm working on my nervous system reactivity and my tendency to interrupt. Um, You can also join me on your journey. Do you have a habit around eating food, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, watching too much television, being on social media, whatever it is, we can come together and use mindfulness and presence and some scientifically proven ways to build new neural pathways in the brain. So I hope that you'll join me. You can visit my website, KarenAnceMD.com to register for free to come to the classes on Zoom. The second offering that I have this month is on conscious communication and resonant healing. So all of us here in the Enneagram community know that our Enneagram type has given us some core wounds. So I hope that you'll join me so that I can share with you some of the strategies that I've been using to overcome my structure and where I identify. And if we can all embark on this journey together, I think it could be really exciting. So I hope I see you in class. Welcome back to The Blind Spot. Last week, we were talking with Frederick about sex and the Enneagram, and he has done some extensive research and has a wonderful online class that you'll hear about at the end of this episode. And I plan to also host a study group for anybody that's interested in working through the material with me. So we're going to pick up where we ended our conversation last week And I hope you enjoy the rest of what Frederick has to share with us. Actually, there's a lot of people saying that the young people are less sexually active today than they've ever been. Have you heard this statistic? Well, yes, I've heard the statistics. um, And I think that indeed it is just because there are so many other ways of keeping oneself busy. Yep. In, In the past, you just had TV and the bedroom. Now you have so many bars, restaurants, you have, unfortunately, social media people are, some people prioritize social media over the relationship with the people who are with them in the house. What do you think about that? Is that okay? Like, what if people are just having all of this this virtual pleasure? It's tragic. I think this is tragic. Mm -hmm. Because all this social media, look, at the end of the day, if we're looking, we are all seeking connection. Mm -hmm. And it's about seeking a connection with the divine inside of ourselves, but we can only do that if we are also in connection with other people. Mm. And social media gives us, it's an imitation of connection. Yes. It gives us an illusion of connection. You're talking to a hundred people online, but you're not connected to them. Right. There's no intimacy about it. Yes. When we're talking about sex and intimacy, some people think that sex is intimacy. No, no, no. Intimacy is about being open, about being vulnerable. Most people have sex in a way that there is no intimacy. Mm. They're not opening up. Mm. And I think this this is the tragedy of the whole thing that people are less and less used to face each other, have the tough discussions that you have to have as a couple. Yeah. Because the romantic ideal that problems will sort themselves out, that's an infantilistic idea. Yeah. People must be in, in every relationship there will be challenges and you have to talk straight to the face. But it's easy to run away and talk to other people on Facebook. Mm, yeah. Well, and what you're saying to me is like deeply landing and feels like super tender because at this 
phase in my life, having, you know, been divorced and been single and been dating, you know, despite the fact that I'm self-preservation dominant, it just feels like unless an experience is going to contain all three instinctual energies, personally, I'm not interested. I'd probably rather do a podcast interview with you, or I'd rather, you know, do something with my kids or read a book or all of these other things. But when those three things come together and sex is a part of it, it does feel pretty transcendent. Like I'm trying to think of what other human experiences and what I'm touching into is that when we get to these higher self-actualized states where we are deeply connecting with ourselves or the divine, I've been told that this can equate really great sex where all three instincts are really creating true intimacy. But I'm just like, wow, yeah, that would be cool to achieve because then you have this feeling that I don't need other people to experience that level of transcendence, which if you talk to all the great spiritual masters, you don't. But I sometimes find myself feeling a little skeptical and maybe I'm just revealing where I am on my growth path. But I definitely am curious about talking about sexual experiences because it's very obvious to me that people are having lots of sex that is imbalanced from the instinctual drives or is playing out egoic agendas. That makes a ton of sense to me. But if you actually can land into a sweet spot where you have true intimacy, where you have what feels like a sacred union, where you're experiencing something physical that is divine, why aren't people figuring out how to have more of that? Or is really the goal to achieve this psycho-spiritual transcendence where you don't need another human at all and you're sort of fully self-sufficient. I'm just not sure if I believe in that or not. I'm throwing it out there to see what you're going to say. No, I I think one of the main problems is vulnerability. I think that the challenge in in sex is that every type um, has a problem with giving up control. Each type has their specific way of trying to remain in control in order not to be vulnerable. And as long as you're not vulnerable, you cannot get into a sexual experience that is going to allow you to bring together a balanced approach to the instincts and also transcending the the, the negative aspects of of the passion of your type. Mm -hmm. And and again, I think that going back to um, the, the state of our society, I think that people have more ways of running away from themselves now. Mm -hmm. It's too easy to say that I'm not going to work on things. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that sex does have some great abilities of of bringing you into a certain state of mind that can feel very, very liberating. And if you're looking at some of the spiritual literature or even at some influential speakers and so on, uh, they have also pointed at that. And, and, and somebody who I find very interesting is Osho, who said that orgasm is some kind of short state of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he wrote a book from, um, what was it, from sex to super consciousness or something like that. And indeed, if, if you look at it, what, what happens is that when, when you have some kind of balance of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, you basically cannot be driven by your passion anymore. Because you have an inner state of tranquility and peace. And for a very short period of time, you are going to experience your essence. And I think that is actually one of the key things that we have to understand that each time we feel sexual desire, it's not necessarily about our partner. What we want is that we are seeking, we are craving a connection with this little divine part in ourselves which is our own essence. Yeah. And it is through the sexual act and especially through orgasm that we're able to get access for a very, very short period of time to our own essence and to somehow recharge our batteries to, to get some kind of extra energy from there. And, and if we're looking at people who are sex addicts, for example, what they want is they are just craving this sense of being in touch with their own, with their own essence, with mm-hmm. their own virtue, 
but they're not able to to really enjoy it. And so they experience it and they want to again and again and again go for it. They're not able to get really, um, they, they can't really recharge their batteries, but they're yeah. still seeking it. So they've like, they've gotten a taste of something, but they start engaging it with it in a way that isn't truly satisfying. So it's like any other drug where you use this drug to create a neurochemical state inside of your body. And then as soon as the drug is gone, you're like, I want that again. So it can become very unfulfilling if we don't also realize that to be human is to just perpetually go through states of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So if we're just perpetually seeking some pleasant state, which is connection with essence, it almost feels like we have to also develop some level of groundedness and presence to sort of be with ourselves when we're not having orgasm. Because if we can develop more skillful ways of just navigating the human experience, then when pleasurable moments come by, they're wonderful. But can we also let go of those pleasurable moments once they're over and still find pleasure from things that are less neurologically hijacking, like there's less Mm -hmm. intensity there. And I think that that's what we see with almost any craving and addiction, wouldn't you say? Yeah, indeed. At the end of the day, sex addiction is an addiction like any other addiction. And sex is just the choice of the drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when we talk about addiction, it's like continuing a behavior despite adverse consequences to yourself. So if you're an addict to anything... If it's food, you're eating even when you're not hungry and you're going to gain weight and get health conditions because of that. If you're having sex just because you're wanting to have that experience of orgasm again and again, and there's like this cycle where that's the only place your attention can be and you are neglecting other important areas of life, you know, we can really make this model for just about anything. And, you know, thinking about like pain pill addictions, like, people start to actually feel the pain of being human. And so we take another pill so that we can numb that away again. So all of it seems to be just some form of escapism. Or Facebook is the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Social media is also a form of escapism. Yeah. It is a, it's very often a lack of willingness to interact with the real world yeah. and go into some kind of, in, into some kind of virtual world where I don't have to interact with the reality anymore. Yeah. And it really raises concern for this young generation where so much of their time, especially coming out of the pandemic, the kids had nothing but a virtual world. They weren't in school. They weren't engaging with peers. And even without the pandemic, we all know that we're all sort of addicted to our phones and particularly young people. And how is that impacting the developing brain? I think it's going to be interesting and a little scary to see what emerges with that. I I also believe, I mean, to me, it's also scary, but at the same time, I believe that every challenging opportunity somehow generates a new wave of seeking some depth, seeking essence in life. And it's some kind of like natural antidote that comes automatically. If, If you look throughout history, each time you have a, a horrible situation, suddenly there is a, a new quest for spirituality. Mm. For, for example, if we are looking at wars, each time there is a war, suddenly people turn more towards spirituality. They go for some kind of re-evaluation of their own values. It is something that I see here very often. I, I can see that the war in Ukraine, for example, has just been a catalyst for many people. Those who were in a very depressive state, for most of them, it has just gotten worse. But for people who somehow were feeling that things were not right and who were, were postponing this re-evaluation of their values just because of the comfort of the situation they were in, they have somehow been forced to change. And I've seen many people who have become much more at ease with themselves, whose anxiety levels have actually dropped although you would say that objectively speaking life has become much worse and much more difficult because if you have missiles flying through the air constantly you hear about people dying and so on you would think people would have a higher level of anxiety 
But for some people, they have come more at ease with themselves. There's some surrender, I think. Like surrender to the worst case scenario is happening right now. So why worry about it? It's happening. It's here. And I kind of surrender and get some acceptance. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Because that's okay. a very, I, I would say, some kind of very fatalistic approach to, okay. to, to war. That's basically saying that, look, I can't do anything in any case. So whatever happens, it's going to happen. Um, no, it is more about people really thinking that, what am I actually doing with my life? Mm. Same happened with COVID. For some people, COVID was a horrible experience. For other people, it was something liberating. Mm. It allowed them to understand that, like, why am I working so hard? Why am I a workaholic? Why did I allow myself to be so focused on fame and money? Why mm. did I allow myself not to see how the kids are growing up? Yeah. Quite some people have actually understood that there was something wrong with their life. And it's actually thanks to the pandemic that they could open up their eyes. So in some ways, we need to experience pain. There's um, a saying that I enjoy that is real transformation only happens when we officially get tired of our same old bullshit. You know, it's like, whatever it is that I'm doing, how am I living my life that's actually causing me suffering? I have to get really clear on that before I can generate the will, like the first the essential strength and then the essential will to start practicing some, to first initiate a different pattern and then keep practicing that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And actually, I want to go back to the topic of sex, because if we're talking about sexual satisfaction, many people believe that, oh, maybe I should have sex more often, or maybe I should learn new techniques or something like that. Well, I'm not saying it has no impact at all, but that's not the main thing. People who want to improve their sexual relationship, people who want to improve their, their perception and their, 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 the way that they perceive the, the sexual relationship, the satisfaction they get from it, it's not because of doing something else in sex. It's about changing their mindset. It's about their growth path. People who have done some inner work are going to have less problems about sex because they're going to actually see that they may be looking for something in sex that can be found there. They're going to be more open to their partner. Instead of blaming the partner for having a problem with sex, they're going to see that, well, the partner is how the partner is and, and I shouldn't have any expectations. And instead, I should look at what I can do to improve the sexual relationship. I'm not entitled to my partner changing anything. If I'm not happy, what am I going to change about that? And this is something that just comes because of, again, a realization that it's all about ourselves. So let me throw something out there. I know that we were chatting a little bit offline about we were in a little Facebook stream where people were talking about monogamy and polyamory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's just imagine a situation where, you know, I'm married, I have kids, it's been a decade or two, and I've discovered that sexually, I'll just use an example of, I like something more intense that has a little bit of dominance play and things like that. And my partner just wants things to be very regular routine. I'm very satisfied with just sort of bread and butter sex. In that situation, I know that People are negotiating things in their relationship where I want to have this certain experience. Me expecting you to give it to me is something that doesn't necessarily, it's a hard thing to compromise on because you're actually talking about, this is what I enjoy. This is what you enjoy. And when we're talking about sex, sometimes these things are different. Maybe somebody has a fetish and the other person has an aversion to that fetish or something but we're not talking about a fetish that causes harm, but there may be other people that like this. I think that this is one reason why sometimes people open relationships and seek sexual experiences outside. If people are really clear about what it is they're looking for and what it is they're getting, I'm curious to hear your opinion on that because I know that you have a belief that monogamy is probably good for most of society. We would have less problems if people mm -hmm. figured out how to be satisfied within monogamous sexual partnerships. But I was giving you some pushback on that because 
I've just seen married people with very different personalities and very different preferences and not allowing some sort of freedom or exploration to have needs met without using that person as my strategy mm-hmm. is sort of where I'm curious about how you'd speak to that. So the question of monogamy versus non-monogamy is a rather complex one. I, I think from one side, part of our society is too tolerant and too open about it, too liberal. And another part of society is demonizing the, the person who cheats and has no and, and, and thinks that this person must be sick and, and something like that. I think that neither of the approaches are actually healthy. Um, if we are looking, if there is a difference in preferences in a partner, what is this conditioned by? Most often it's conditioned by instincts, by type, by some unresolved trauma, by something from the subconscious. Now, the higher you go in your own level of awareness and your partner as well, the less of a divergence of preferences you're going to have. So I would say there are two options. You could say that, look, I can get X with you, so I find it with somebody else. Or you can say, we can grow together and there's not going to be a need for it. Because at the end of the day, seeking your own sexual pleasure is something that is extremely um, egocentric. And of course, we're all human. We all want to have our own pleasures. But the higher, again, we go into these levels of awareness, the higher we go into these levels of consciousness, it becomes less about me. It becomes more about serving something higher. But taking and an this example, desire is going to this desire is automatically going to reduce. So I love what you're saying. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. What's coming up for me though is that in a world where people, you know, marry people that they met at 19, 20, 21, and then a decade or two go by, I would say that it is the exception and not the rule that both people choose to be on a spiritual growth path and continue to grow together. It often seems like one partner is interested in this type of work and the other partner doesn't want to talk about that at all. Do you think that that means that you can't achieve a certain level of intimacy if your partner's like, this is just what I want. I don't want to look at my motivations. I don't want to look at what this means or the symbolic. This is, this is what I want and how I want it. And you can go do your psycho-spiritual stuff you're doing, but this is my location and this is where I'm at. You're kind of stuck in those situations, aren't you? Well, it is my personal belief that if a couple is really in connection with each other, if they really have a relationship, then they will grow together. Very but do you agree that most couples, couples are, are not? Most couples indeed, are not. Yeah. Most couples are not in a relationship. Right. Many couples are married. Right. They have kids and they actually don't know why they are together. And why? And I think here we have a fundamental problem of how we look at the topic of love in our society. In our society, love is something that I get, something that I am entitled to, something that just happens to me. And then we, we talk about, oh, I fell in love, and then suddenly love is gone. Well, look, first of all, falling in love, Eros. each time you fall into something, if you fall into a deep hole, if you fall into bankruptcy, if you fall into something, it's always bad. And why is falling in love something positive? This yes. whole emotional romantic thing is somehow idealized, but it's a very immature form of love. Yes. If you look at a more mature form of love, it's not about what I get. It is a commitment you take. Yes. It is a conscious decision that I am going to love this person. I am going to support this person in becoming a better version of him or herself without pushing my own agenda, but allowing the potential of this person to just blossom without any expectations. So it is very much, I mean, in a true mature relationship, people don't have expectations on each other. Yes, they may like it. They may somehow hope that something's going to happen, but they shouldn't have an expectation. There is no entitlement for the other to change. And I believe that if one person is going to change, 
And if the couple is in a relationship, they will automatically change. Look, if, for example, if you go to a chiropractor or somebody like that and you have something in your spine, if the position of one part of your, your vertebra is, needs to be amended and you change that, then the rest is also going to somehow get into place. Yes. It's by proxy that the other one is also going to change and is actually going to get inspired. What yes. happens very often is that when we do inner work, we think we do inner work, but in reality, we're just replacing one illusion about ourselves with another illusion about ourselves. We get a sense of superiority and we start demanding our partner to change and to become as enlightened as we are. Mm. In reality, that's not inner work. Inner no. work is about what you do yourself. And automatically, look, if you're super anxious, and because of your inner work, this level of anxiety goes down and you are in a relationship with a partner, the partner will notice it. Yeah. And it is going to trigger the partner less. And it is going to allow the partner also to open up and to be more vulnerable. Yes. So I personally do not believe that in a relationship, one is developing and the other one is not. It it's means that the people system. are not in connection with each other. Indeed, it's a system. It's like in family systems, right? If one person in the family dies, passes away, somebody will take over some of the roles inside of the system. Yeah. Organically, things will change. Yeah. And what I'm hearing, though, I love that I'm talking to a six because you're giving me all this like emotional realness and I'm like wanting to buy it. And I'm like wanting to just like go there with you to this beautiful, idealistic world where we're all in real relationships and experiencing intimacy and able to be vulnerable and having this beautiful experience. And then my competency type is like, okay, but we're talking about real humans that are going to grow if they're growing at all, if they choose to wake up at all. And in the meantime, we have families and we have children and we have social structures. And I kind of think this is going to take a while. So while I completely agree that what you're naming is that there's personal growth, which is sort of upgrading my personality so that I'm like mm -hmm. less of an asshole. And then there's actually like spiritual transcendence where I'm sort of just leaving a lot of these confines of the personality. And like you said, suddenly we don't need rules because there's like a few inherent principles that maybe we call the virtues or the holy ideas. Yeah. And we're kind of living within that. And now suddenly everything is incredibly simple. But I think that it's still important to explore how do we help people? How do we support them? And we're talking about sex specifically. And we know that we're coming out of a time where there's so much sexual violence. I mean, there's the Roman Catholic Church and priests that have mm -hmm. harmed children and the Me Too movement where women are coming forth and talking about so many ways that They've been harmed by men and, you know, just sex as a weapon, sex as something that harms people. I'm just noticing that I'm interested in coming up with strategies that do create less harm, inviting people onto a growth path and believing that it all kind of sorts itself out. And as long as we stay committed to some kind of practice, which is what I love about your model, where you were talking about people learning the Enneagram, but really being invited into a daily practice with it. You learn something, you practice with another human, maybe not live, but at least virtually. And mm -hmm. so you're really establishing community. And I know firsthand that, yes, I mean, when I got divorced, my ex-husband and I were absolutely not in a relationship and we were not connected. And we, you know, had this delusion that we could stay this way and continue to raise children. And then the apple cart's upset and there you go. But like now at this point, yes, my definition of what does love mean? And if I'm loving someone without having all those expectations, I just get tripped up a little bit around expecting somebody to be monogamous. Now they may choose to be monogamous with me. And I can choose whatever I'm choosing on my end, you know, for whatever reasons I'm choosing. But it just feels like expecting monogamy before it's coming from a place of true generosity mm -hmm. where 
I'm wanting to be monogamous with you and you're wanting to be monogamous with me is sort of making humans fast forward to a level of consciousness that they just may not be at. And maybe polyamory offers some strategies while we're in this in-between phase. What do you think about that? I have spoken to many couples that are in open marriages and so on. And for some couples, it has proven to be very helpful. No doubt about that. Um, Many couples like that have even reported that they feel that their relationship has actually tremendously improved. But if you look at why it has improved, it's not because of the fact that they have sex with somebody else, but it is because of the fact that they have learned to speak to each other openly. They Mm -hmm. have learned to communicate with each other. Without the fear of being broken up with. Like if I sleep with somebody else, you're out the door. Right there, we're in a power and control dynamic. Exactly. So what has happened is that because of this opening up of the relationship, they were forced to speak to each other. They were forced to open up. They were forced to tell each other what they truly think. Yes. But they didn't necessarily have to have this non-monogamous experience. Maybe by learning to communicate openly, it could have improved already. Because it's a dangerous experiment. Because yes, for some people, it has improved. But for some people, it has made it even worse. Yes. For some people, it has ruined their relationship. Because very often, people may have a fantasy, and then they put it into practice. And it just ruins everything in their life. So it's... And why does it ruin everything? It's very much of a gamble. Well, why? Because people are looking for the wrong thing in sex. and they, they, So they, they get hooked. Their attention gets it, hooked to this other person and they no longer invest in the relationship they're, they're in. Indeed. I mean, there is many aspects to it. First of all, they're looking for something that they cannot find in sex and then think that I'll find it elsewhere. It's right. like what I said, right? You try to buy a steak in the bakery. You don't find it. What do you do? You go to the next bakery. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily helpful. The other thing is also that if you are in a sexual relationship with another person, it's also going to lead to this release of oxytocin. There will be a certain bonding process happening with that person. Mm -hmm. Even if you say that it is only for the sexual pleasure, there is no emotional bond. No, the emotional bond will be created. Because it's biology. That's how it works. Indeed, It is biology. So, and, And the other thing is that If you find it difficult to be in a relationship with your spouse, by opening up the marriage and already having to triangulate additional relationships, because it's partner X with a new extramarital partner, partner B who indirectly will also have a relationship with that partner, it makes the relationships even worse. Well, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Then three relationships can be even more difficult, except if you are social dominant for whom it may be easier to juggle with these relationships. Yes. But then it does not mean that they will necessarily find more happiness and satisfaction. Right. And I'm just going to throw on there the Myers-Briggs typology. People who have J in their structure they like more organization in their outer world because then that frees up the inner world to go play. People who have P in their Myers-Briggs preferences have need the organization in their inner world. And then their outer world can have a lot of surprise spontaneity and they actually prefer it that way. So I just want to add this other layer that I would love to research. I'm just throwing a question out into the Mm -hmm. milieu is that I think it's a mistake to assume, I mean, humans do want some level of predictability and routine. I mean, if I woke up every day in a different home, not knowing where any of my clothes were or my toothbrush, like that's a lot of chaos. We need to have some habits. We need to have some ritual. We need to have some routines. But the amount of order and predictability we want in our world is very different from human to human. So there may be certain needs met simply because the exploratory novelty factor is more important to certain brains than others. And so just knowing that about yourself, knowing that about your partner, what does that mean? Because I I think it's important to say that we are meaning makers. If you're doing certain behaviors... I'm going to create a story in my mind 
about why you're doing that based on my perspective, based on my type and my stack and all these other things. And it's always important to remember that that is just simply the narrative that I've decided to attach to, and it could be completely wrong. But look, I understand that people have non-monogamous desires. And I think that almost everybody has non-monogamous desires if they are operating at a level of the passion and not at the level of the virtue. It's almost inevitable. But very often people are going to repress these non-monogamous desires and they will show up in their fantasies or in their dreams. But the point that I wanted to make is that at the end of the day, the survival of society is not going to depend on the fact whether or not you get your pleasure if you get your desires met. It is very much going to depend on how is society going to function. And non-monogamy creates quite a number of challenges for society to survive, especially in our materialistic society. There are societies where non-monogamy is there, right? Where, where they have a very permissive approach towards non-monogamy, where it is even encouraged. And it's all done for very pragmatic reasons. Again, it is actually done for enhancing the survival of society. If we're looking at some let's say, uh, Amazonian tribes that believe in, share, in shared paternity, where a woman who is pregnant is going to have sex with more than one man, because then she knows that if the child has two or three fathers, survival chances are going to be higher. So yes, from, from that sense, it's also very debatable, right? Does non-monogamy actually improve the likelihood of a society to survive or not? That's one question. But the other question is more the spiritual aspect to it. So I'm just going to name, um, have you read of this, heard of this book, Prometheus Rising? By it's something Anton Wilson. Do you know this book? No, I, I don't. Okay, so I'm just going to invite all listeners, go get Prometheus Rising. It's, it's a brilliant book. And he talks about the different circuits that develop. And this fourth circuit is the social sexual circuit meaning mm -hmm. that when we're becoming sexually active, it's within a certain social context and that we don't really have choice around what it is that we ultimately become sexually attracted to because there's imprinting that's going on mm -hmm. during the time that we're coming to sexual maturity. He makes this very provocative statement, and it's an observation, and it's true, that the only consistent thing when we look at societies and the rules around what is or isn't okay when it comes to sex is that there will be rules about sex. Every single society has created yeah. rules about sex, every single spirituality. So when you use this term, when you look at all the spiritual traditions, I'm not sure if you're talking about spirituality or if you're talking about religion, because to me, those are two very different things. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, religions that have a God who created the world. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just saying, I'm receiving that with some skepticism because, like, I just kind of want to look at what are all of these religions having in common, which, you know, as you get higher and higher up the mystic teachings, the mystics don't talk about rules with sex, I think, very often. They're talking about virtues and they're talking about, you know, they're. Talking about holy ideas, if you look across all the mystics in every religion, now, how do we basically control society to get the best outcome? This is where these rules have come from. And I just think that we're at a stage where, you know, we were even talking about the spiral and like only 10% are at second tier consciousness, we were saying. And so like 90% of the world is not really able to hold paradox, is not really able to say, like, are not able to be non-dual. So, but I do think that humanity is progressing. We have seen ourselves go up the spiral in terms of what percentage are coming in at each level. And specifically the people listening to this podcast, I would argue there's more than 10% of the people who listen to this podcast that may be at second tier consciousness. Just because you're listening, because you're an advanced Enneagram student, you care about personal growth, and you're changing and evolving in some way, shape, or form. Otherwise, I think you're probably not listening to this. So I'm more curious about just really looking at the ties that bind us and 
through an experiential approach saying, which ones and how does this feel inside of my body? Because mm-hmm. as I become more embodied, I really think that I'm being guided towards making better and better decisions for myself. But when I put a rule on myself saying, Kara, you should not interrupt the person who you're interviewing. Okay, that would be like a rule. Why do I not want to interrupt? Well, because I don't want to be disrespectful and I really want to have flow and I want the person listening to enjoy it more. But if I get overly excited and I happen to interrupt you, does that mean it has to be a big deal? No, I mean, I'm learning. I'm just going to note that. And I think that that's just a little tiny, simple example, but we can also take that into our romantic relationships where I might say, I do actually believe in monogamy as an ideal because there's something sacred about it. And there's something about love that you've beautifully described that I really, really want to aspire to. And at this moment in time, I'm not enlightened. There are these moments where I get frustrated, I get judgmental, I'm Mm -hmm. trying to fulfill an egoic agenda. And do I really want to be hard on myself if there's a night that happens that is not in my rules of monogamy? Or do I want to talk to my partner and say, hey, I'm noticing these very human tendencies arising in my experience and they don't feel great and yet they're here. So can Mm -hmm. you presence these with me? Like, how do we want to be in relationship to this, knowing what we know about biology, knowing what we know about spirituality and how do we want to work on this together? And what do I have to do on my end? And what might you want to look at on your end? And how do we navigate this? So to me, that just feels like a more realistic approach for most of us that are probably listening to this podcast right now, Mm -hmm. because it feels kinder. It feels less like there's less force or punishment or we should all be monogamous. I think that that's Mm -hmm. what I'm reacting to. Well, I, in my course, I have actually three hours of sex and the values according to the stages of spiral dynamics. Mm. How does each stage look at sexual education, Mm. non-monogamy, masturbation, and so on and so on? So I've also looked at it. And and this whole idea about this permissiveness about non-monogamy is a very green thing. And I doubt you will find it in yellow. that's already a a different story. I I think here we should focus on the Enneagram. Now, again, I am fully aware that there is a difference between some ideals that we should be striving to and the real situation that people find themselves into. But the the only point that I actually wanted to make is that, and and it's up to all people to to decide if they want to be monogamous, non-monogamous, and so on, because at the end of the day, it's it's a personal thought. I mean, it's a personal decision that you take. As, as long as it is conscious what you do, as long as you are conscious of the consequences that this is going to lead to, and that you take full responsibility of these consequences, that is fine. It is part. This can be part of your growth path. Now, in the past, I was also thinking more in towards the direction that, like. Let people do whatever they want to do, as long as they're not upsetting anybody or anything like that. But I have grown over the last two years. I have grown a little bit more skeptical of my own thinking in the past, because I believe that if there are non-monogamous desires, it's all about unmet needs. And there are two ways of dealing with unmet needs. Either you try to fill them, So you stay on the same level of consciousness or you try to work yourself into a higher level of consciousness, which is going to imply that you also have to moderate some of these needs a little bit more. Conscious suffering, I think Gurdjieff called it. Yes, indeed. Conscious suffering. And it's a very difficult thing. I'm I'm not saying that it is easy and I can understand that Many people indeed are having a non-monogamous affair and it is, it's a big relief for them. It makes their life somehow easier. But again, then it's just a coping mechanism, right? Yes. Then it is. So the, the challenge that I see more with this kind of non-monogamous constellations is that people see this type of exploring 
as their growth. Right. Well, you're going to learn more, something. But it's more. But it's but it's more of a coping mechanism yes. than growth, I believe. For sure. And, and and there and there is nothing wrong with that because right. at the end of the day, everybody is acting on the basis of their own inner resources that they have available. Right. And for some people, actually, it is possible that having an extramarital affair may alleviate a lot of the pressure that is there. Yes. Just so like starting an antidepressant understand. might get you out exactly. of depression to a place where you can work. Taking a Xanax might get your anxiety to a level that you can actually do some work. So we're just talking about these very human things, like maybe sitting with that pint of ice cream is what you need this one night. Exactly. But yeah. this is more of, let's say, some kind of coping mechanism. It of is course. dealing with the symptoms yes. of something that is deeper. Yes. And if you want to tackle the deeper issues, yes. then the non-monogamy is not going to solve it. I totally agree with you. Most likely. So, and, and this again, so this is why I believe sometimes Yes, this extramarital affair, and it may even be in hiding. Yes. Even that may sometimes be the best at that moment. Yes. But it's not, but let's not equate that with growth. And if Absolutely. we're working with the Enneagram, our purpose at the end of the day is to grow as human beings. And, and so this is why in my course and my approach, I'm definitely never going to advocate for non-monogamy because okay. it's not leading to growth, but uh -huh. it can lead to certain temporary relief. And I think my request would just be as somebody who's like solidly lodged in the shame triad, that I think the way that we teach these things and the way that we talk about these things, I think there's enough sexual repression in our society that if people are acting out some of these sexual behaviors, which maybe look like non-monogamy or could look like any wide variety of things, just like any other thing, I think that I come more from the stance of people aren't going to not do this thing because we tell them they shouldn't. If that desire is coming up and they're noticing that they're acting out this thing, what I prefer to do is to enter that space with them and say, okay, you're having this experience. And what are you learning from that? Like, how is that feeling for you? So I guess I'm just in this place where I want to allow people to learn from the direct embodied experience, as opposed to me telling them, you're going to end up choosing monogamy at the end of the day. So just suffer mm -hmm. through it now, because someday when you've achieved nirvana, it'll be fine. I just think that that alienates people from the path, as opposed to just acknowledging hey, you ate the ice cream last night. Okay, you didn't work out this week. Okay, you slept with that person last weekend. You know, this is what happened. What are we going to learn from it? Exactly. This, this can then be part of the growth path, but mm -hmm. I do not believe that any therapist or any spiritual teacher should actually advocate for exploring non-monogamy. Okay. I don't think but I want to advocate for anything, though. But if, if it happens to a person and it's a conscious decision, yeah, then it may be part of their path. And indeed, there are many people who fantasize about non-monogamy. And yeah. then once it happens, it's like, oh, my God, that's it. Like, and I wasted so much energy fantasizing about right. it and thinking about that. It's like, just do it and realize that it's not going to fix your problem. Yeah, but it's very <laughs> difficult to give that as an advice because the negative consequences can be extremely big. Yeah. And I, I, I just kind of come from a stance that it's hard to avoid negative consequences. Negative consequences happen to all of us, even when we think we're living along an ideal, I would say. Yeah, indeed. But when, look, when there is a desire for non-monogamy, it always comes out of an unmet need. And then you can either choose and say, I will go for non-monogamy uh -huh. with a possible negative consequence, or you can say that I'm going to repress it and it's yeah. going to have equal negative consequences, uh -huh. right? The decision or, the or, or this kind of repression of not acting on these non-monogamous desires can be equally destructive as the extramarital affair. So the question is rather like, should we go for non-monogamy or non-monogamy? 
or should you try to transcend that? Yeah. And the only way to transcend that is by doing your inner work. Yes. Well, Frederick, I think that we're in violent agreement, actually, about most of what we're talking about. <laughs> and, you know, if anything, I think that we've really kicked off a super interesting discussion. And I can't wait to get to your curriculum and actually start checking that out. But I'm looking at the time and realizing that our listeners probably are, I mean, we could go all day, I think, but, you know, yes. we should probably um, put a pin in it here. But I'm so excited that we met. This is one of the things I love about social media. I would have never known about you without it. And it's just leading to such a great discussion that I hope we get to continue to unpack. So thank you so much. Yeah. And maybe if I can just add one last thing, because we just had a, a very open discussion where we were jumping from one thing to the other. For people who are really interested in learning more about the topic of sex and the Enneagram and, and get a very structured approach to all of these topics about the levels, about yeah. type, instinct, motivations of sex, motivations for non-monogamy, you can just reach out to me and I'll, I'll gladly give access to a 21-hour online video course that I have and, and people can just take uh, just like that. That's amazing. I think that that is wonderful. And I'm going to go ahead and put a little plug that I want to work my way through this 21-hour curriculum. So if there are any other Enneagram enthusiasts out there, I do better with making agreements with other people that I'm going to watch this and then I get to discuss it with you, kind of what you're setting up, Frederick. So on my website, KarenAnsMD.com, there's a place to just contact me. And I would love it if I heard from some people that wanted to go through your curriculum together and we could kind of unpack some of these ideas, please reach out to me. I'd love to um, organize a study group. So thank you. Great. Thanks, Frederick. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying these episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like to address in a future episode, please email me at social at I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice, including typology, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Please visit my website at karenancemd.com to schedule a free 30-minute consultation if you'd like to work with me in any way. We also have the opportunity for free classes.